Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where four friends seek to broaden their cinematic horizons. I'm your host, a guy who doesn't know how to quit when he's ahead, Scott Murray, and I am joined today by my fellow self-made tragedies, jewelry obsessive Joel Lewis. I disagree. Man, always on the wrong side of the coin flip, Tim Gerard. Hello. And sports gambler, Zeke Perez. Hi. And uh, to get in the mindset for this, I actually did throw down a series of uh, Ah, ah. probably not agreeable parlays today. So we'll see how that goes throughout the podcast. (laughs) That one's actually true. Yeah. We might have to have you give us a tutorial on what a parlay is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Can do. Um, Now or just at some point. Like I I did have a question about that. So I'll, I'll, yeah, when we get to the slide, I'm curious. So. For those of you unfamiliar, Movie Mumble is just a monthly film club podcast of sorts where we all get together, we pick a film, we watch it, and then we talk about it. The idea being that we get more out of our movies when we share them with people whose company we enjoy. The films can be new or old, animated or live action, foreign or domestic, something we've never seen or seen a million times. There are no rules. We spoil every film we talk about, so if you're worried about that sort of thing, please watch a film before listening to its podcast episode. And at the end of each episode, we announce what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. This month, Zeke was our movie selector, and he brought us Uncut Gems. Zeke, do you want to start off with a brief overview of the film, and then how you discovered it, and why you brought it? Sure, yeah. Um, Actually, kind of took some notes on the order of operations here for what happens in the movie. Um, but long story short, uh, Adam Sandler plays a jeweler uh, who's also addicted to gambling. And the movie is really just kind of a tale of him almost getting out of the hole, but then just digging a deeper hole and a deeper hole and a deeper hole. Um, so to roll through the notes, um, the movie starts and he's already $100,000 in debt. Um, the loan shark happens to be his brother-in-law, so more drama. Um, he buys, uh, and also he's getting screened for cancer. So, uh, more drama, um, that'll come up a lot. Uh, he, so he buys an opal, like a pretty rare opal that he thinks he can flip and sell for a million dollars, um, and kind of pay his debts and, and set things right from there. Um, so one of his coworkers brings NBA superstar, Kevin Garnett into the jewelry shop. Um, they're showing him a few things. He's trying to make a sale. And, um, so, uh, Howard, Adam Sandler's character shows him the opal. Kevin Garnett falls in love with it, wants to buy it. Adam, so Howard says, no, uh, he's like, well, why would you show me this if, if you're not going to sell it to me? So there's some haggling there. Um, he ends up letting Kevin Garnett borrow it for the game. He feels like it's a good luck charm. He wants to have it on hand for the, the next playoff game he's in. So he, he asks to keep it. Um, in exchange, he gives uh, his Boston Celtics championship ring to, to Howard, um, which Howard then goes and pawns um, to get some cash that he can use to flip into a bet, another recurring theme. So he goes and tries to place the bet with his bookie. The bet would win him uh, $600,000. Again, another opportunity to set, set everything right. Um, the bet wins. You think, okay, cool. He's got his 600 grand. 
Um, he gets mugged at the school by, at his daughter's school <laughs> during a school play by the loan shark and his goons. And they, um, you know, shake him down, tell him he need to give us the money. And they also reveal that they had the bet stopped. They went to the bookie and said, no, you're using the money that you owed me. And I'm not going to let that happen. So the bet didn't happen. So Adam's like, well, what the fuck? There's the money that I thought I wanted to set everything right. Um, I know this is a long one, but it, it really helps <laughs> build it there just so much. So then um, Kevin Garnett wants to buy the Opal. There's a for 175,000, which would again, give Howard the money he needs. Uh, Howard turns it down because he feels like it's worth a million. So, you know, he says, no, he's Kevin Garnett's mad. He said, okay, fine. Well, let me get the ring back. Howard had pawned Kevin Garnett's ring. So Howard needs to go get Kevin Garnett's ring back. He pawns a Knicks championship ring that he had. Um, he goes to the Opal auction. He tells Kevin Garnett, you look, if you really want to buy it, I'm selling it at auction. You can get it there. Um, dumb move time he tells his father-in-law hey come with me to this auction and i need you to help me drive up the price a little bit because the uh, when he submitted it for auction the appraisal ended up coming up much lower than he thought he thought he would get a million the appraisal comes in just over a hundred thousand so he says hey i need you to help me drive this up uh for me so the father-in-law goes to the auction um tries to outbid kevin garnett or get the bidding up so that kevin garnett takes it for like two hundred thousand. they're getting right up there and then KG backs out his assistants, like, you know, I can't have you spending this kind of money. <laughs> Kevin Garnett says, fine. So then the father-in-law is stuck paying the bill. Howard tells him, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll pay you back with some extra money. So there's more money that Howard, Howard owes. Um, ends up selling the, the Opal to Kevin Garnett after he buys it back from his father-in-law. He gets his $175,000 from Kevin Garnett for the Opal. Um, does he take it and pay off his debts? No, of course he doesn't. He places another parlay that would win him $1.2 million. Uh, the loan shark goons come back to the shop. He traps them um, in the hallway right outside of the shop in between some, some dysfunctional doors that are probably a fire code uh, hazard. And they're trapped there. He's got the game on. You're kind of living every beat of the bet. You're trying to see, okay, is how's it going to shake out? Um, he ends up winning the 102 or the, the 1.2 million, um, lets them in, is celebrating and gets shot in the head and dies. <laughs> so there's also some, uh, wife is divorcing me. Um, I've got a mistress at my job. She lives at my apartment sort of drama there. There's just no shortage of drama for him. Um, I know that that was the longest like movie description intro I've done on the podcast, but like I said, I feel like it warrants it just because every time you think he's going to dig himself out, he just makes it worse. Um, this is how I know you're like fully a part of the podcast. Cause this is reminiscent of Tim and me going beat for beat every <laughs> scene in the movies in our early stuff <laughs> on our majesty's secret service and Shin Godzilla. Go back and listen to those episodes beat for fucking beat. <laughs> it just doesn't have the same effect. Like if I would have left it at, he's a jeweler who's addicted to gambling and called it quits. Like that doesn't let you know how close he is to, to, you know, paying off his debts and how dumb he is every step of the way. Um, so yeah, this movie came to me, uh, I think because of the subject matter of it, but also because of Adam Sandler. So I grew up a big Adam Sandler fan. He's probably my 
uh, favorite comic actor, um, you know, Happy Gilmore, Waterboy, Billy Madison, Big Daddy. There's the list goes on and on. Still watch them all the time. Can quote them all. Um, always just loved his style of humor back to SNL through all the movies he made. Um, so I've tried to keep up with those, um, you know, and he's, he's taken a turn and done some more serious ones along the way. Um, but right when this one came out, there was some, uh, Oscar buzz, which I think we'll get into. Um, and like I said, just the subject matter of it, right. Of there being some sports tie-ins and, uh, some gambling tie-ins that made me want to see it. So that's kind of, um, what brought me to it. And then I brought it here, uh, because of some of the questions I have about it and just to kind of, uh, get everyone's reaction. I feel like it's one of those movies that's just edge of your seat and curious to see what everyone thought of it. Yeah. I'll start off our first impressions, I guess. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I had heard about it before. You, You couldn't not if you're on streaming services, I guess. And I guess a lot of people seem surprised to think about Adam Sandler in a serious role. But the moment I heard the description, I was just like, yes, I, I need this. It just sounds right. Um, and then I just never watched it. I don't know. It was on streaming. It was always going to be there. So I always just kind of went, oh, uh, later. So I'm really glad we finally did. I really liked it. It felt very... I, I tried to tell this to Joel yesterday and a little bit to my dad today, and I haven't got anywhere, but it felt very much of a particular type of cinema of classic, not like early 1900s classic, but like maybe the seventies of just a bad person making increasingly bad decisions as everything falls apart around him type of film, right? With a very tight, very brisk script and a small cast that's carried entirely on the weight of the performances. And I, I've been struggling to come up with good examples, I guess. Maybe Badlands has the same plot structure. Uh, Deliverance feels a little bit along those lines. Uh, Ghost Rider, I think, the later Polanski movie was that, except Ghost Rider is a guy uncovering a conspiracy, not, you know ruining his life right it's one of those this is one of those films that's like a quote-unquote tragedy except that the tragedy is of their own making right um and they just they they nailed it they just hit the nail right on the head and adam sandler especially nailed it so yeah i loved it joel i see you looking looking thoughtful there what about you um so i i saw this um, I, I booked tickets to see this on like the night it came out. And I think Zeke and I had talked about seeing it together and Zeke couldn't go. So, but I pulled up, I remember I had, I had messaged him as soon as I got out of it with my initial reaction. So I, I was able to pull it up. I had it on Facebook. So my first, the first reaction was a, a gif of Stewie from family guy in the corner of his crib, rocking back and forth <laughs> with his eyes and his hair kind of like, crazy and i said me after uncut gems um and (laughs) zeke said was it a roller coaster of emotions i said roller coaster would be up and down it's a barrage it's unrelenting (laughs) and i was physically i was nauseous from the stress afterward the the first time i saw when i saw it in theaters it like especially with a theater sound system it felt like 10 decibels too loud the whole movie and it just is unrelenting and it's just such an effective score. And it was almost like everything else. I mean, pun intended was turned down compared to 
just like every part of the film was tension building and anxious and just ratcheted up. And as, as Sandman makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, it's just like, can nothing go right? And I, I think it's almost, I mean, in Shakespearean tragedy, it's the tragic flaw that makes the hero go through the tragedy. And I think this is very similar to that where, and it's also kind of uh, in a response to noir because our noir hit heroes are a doorway away from disaster and have bad luck and all these things go wrong around them. And they end up in these very kind of uh, uh, cruel, cruel worlds. Whereas this is a combination of that. He just continues to make bad decisions and that puts him further in the hole than he ever was before. Um, I, it's not an enjoyable film to watch. It is a good film, but it stresses me out to watch it. And it, the added anxiety of watching it, and this is why I said, fuck you, Zeke, for choosing it at the end of last episode, was that it, it's just, it, it's an anxious watch. And it's a really effective film for making you feel those things. Um, yeah, I mean, upon watching it a second time, I don't think it, it loses any of, I'm, I was so happy grateful to have the the volume control because i was like i can i can back this off and i don't have to feel quite as anxious and it's just such a the ending is 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 so you know that should be how it ends you know but you're like you you hoped you you're you're right on the edge of your seat with him and it's and i think some that was something in the in the original performance and me watching it for the first time i kind of dismiss the performance a little bit i think zeke you had asked me about sorry i'm getting into way too much but upon first watch i was thinking sandman is good in it but he's not the best thing about it the whole movie is this force but watching it again this time it's like the reason i didn't think of it as a an an outstanding performance by sandman is because he disappeared into it and i haven't seen a whole lot of things where he had done that before this time I really dialed into the nuances and what he's playing that character. And there's one, my favorite scene, and we'll get to it. He, he's like, he, he's, he's making choices and it's subtle moves. And it, it's just like, he makes you feel in a way I'd never seen him do before. He, he, he plays the audience and, and it, it, it's, it's great. It's, it's a really, really great masterful performance. And I think on the second watch, I, that really dialed in for me. Tim, do you want to give us your first impressions? Yeah. So uh, for me, my the the first thing I thought of, and I I didn't bother to look this up because I was like, I'll just talk about it in the podcast. Is um, I, I, it made me wonder if the director of this was the director of Punch Drunk Love? Um, because there was a scene. It was no. It, oh. Paul Thomas Anderson did Punch Drunk Love. And okay. This is the Safdie brothers. Okay, because there was a scene in Punch Drunk Love that I remember. Um, feeling that the, 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 that same sense of anxiety because of the the cacophony that's that was going on, and you know, with Punch Drunk Love, like you know, you're kind of like, okay, it's kind of a comedy but kind of a love story. And I remember watching that, and the, I wasn't expected for all of a sudden there was this scene where you know, the, yeah, the music was just kind of driving and kind of getting in the way, and then people were moving in and out and and kind of talking to each other and talking over each other and you know, moving out but coming in, and, and you could see kind of his anxiety in that scene. And I remember starting to feel it and being like, Oh man, like this is the point. Like they're, they're using, you know, the point of this is not 
to to hear every line of dialogue is to create this this texture of all this dialogue kind of coming at you that you can't perceive all of and uh and i just remember being like oh yeah this is how his character feels in this situation and immediately i felt that in this film and i was kind of uh i think i felt the anxiety less because i was ready for it and i recognized it and that was why that was my first thought and first impression is like oh yeah this is like that scene in Punch Drunk Love, which stuck with me because I had never seen a, a, another film do that before. Um, you know, and I, I've seen that in plays, you know, where you look at the the script of a play and you see two sets of dialogue running parallel in two com- columns because these two people are saying all their lines simultaneously and they're talking over each other and you're not really getting, you know, again, really what either one is getting, but you're, you know, you're, again, it becomes this sort of this texture, this cacophony. And, um, so, so it was really cool. Like I, I kind of feel like I had the, the advantage over you, Joel, that I wasn't as inundated by it. Like I could kind of step back from it and be like, this is what's happening. I'm going to be along for the ride. Um, and same thing with the music. Yeah. It, it kind of reminded me, this is another weird comparison of like with interstellar where there are points where, you know, like a lot of people complained how the music was just overpowering the dialogue. But, and I remember at that point too, it was after I'd heard all those complaints, but I'm like, well, I think that's kind of the point, you know, they're out in a field driving a truck and there's like a tornado or something. It's like, they're not hearing every line of dialogue that they're saying, like, that's, that's the point, you know? And um, so it was, yeah, it was really cool to see, the the score have so much importance where you know it kind of you know amped it up to 11 because the dialogue was doing it you know also where it's like you get these people you know it kind of reminds me of like a holiday when your whole family is there and everyone's just talking over each other and kind of no one's yielding and you know it's just like you know you can either kind of just get lost in it or step back and just be like okay i'm just gonna hear the static that is being produced, but not try to really understand any one person or any conversation. Um, but it was, it also kind of like made me think of it being as, as a very sort of effective, um, like, uh, like New York city type of movie, you know, where it's like, Oh yeah, that's just what it's like. You're walking around and just people everywhere and you're hearing, you know, multiple com- conversations simultaneously. So it definitely put it sort of in that vibe of, of like, yeah, like, okay. Like, you know, it's, there are all these just lives happening simultaneously. Um, so, so yeah, so I really, I really liked that part. I liked that, um, you know, there were times where you did get a break from that, you know, like, um, you know, when he, when he finally goes home and, you know, even when he's at his, his family's house or, you know, at the play, but, um, yeah, so I like that, that there were these little moments of, of release within all that cacophony. Um, but it was also funny to see that that was sort of his life. And I feel like he kind of wanted that. And that was kind of what he thrived on. Um, you know, cause there were just so many things. Yeah. So many little moments where it's like, I feel like if, if that was kind of bothering him, there's okay. There's a way to step out of that. Like every time he was walking on the street, he wouldn't just be like, okay, cool. I've got a moment alone with my thoughts. It's like, Oh, I got to text this person. I got to send him a picture of the money I got. You know, it's just like, just shut the fuck up, man. Like, like, (laughs) like, you know, it's always those little things where it's like, okay, like this isn't you being kind of assaulted by this stuff. Like you are, you are as much a part of this and contributing to it, you know? So I also kind of felt a little less bad for him because of that. You know, he wasn't trying to live this simple, you know, laid back life and all of this stuff was piling on top of him. Um, you know, he, he was constantly doing things to pile on top of himself. 
And the, the other thought I had uh, after it finished was it, it reminded me a lot of Breaking Bad where, you know, say kind of like what you said, Joel, like, uh, or Joel or Scott, I forget which one of you said this. Where it, I think it was Joel. Yeah. It was a good film, but I didn't enjoy it, you know? And it's like, I almost wondered, like, maybe that's not the point. You're probably not supposed to enjoy, or I shouldn't say this. I shouldn't say I didn't enjoy the film. I didn't enjoy the experience of watching the film. Um, and that's how it was with Breaking Bad. Like after a while, I was like, I don't want to watch this show anymore, but I can't stop watching this show, you know? And, and I could appreciate it for how well it's written, but it's like, I don't like how I feel when I'm watching this show, you know, and I don't like the people anymore, you know? And, and that was a thing similar to Breaking Bad where, at first you feel bad for Walt because of what has happened to him. But at a certain point, he starts making decisions that are making things worse for himself. You know, it's not that it's just happening to him by chance and Oh, poor Walt. There are plenty of times where Walt could get out of the situation he was in. And I feel like the same thing happened here with, uh, uh, what was his name? Harvey, Harvey, Howard. Howard. Howard, Howard, Howard. Yeah. So, you know, the same thing happens with Howard where it's like, okay, like, yeah, like you're about to get out of this and all you had to do, all you had to do was, you know, not to send a picture of this money, all you, you know, I'd not talk, you know, or do, you know, and it's like, yeah. So after a while, you're just like, I, I, I don't, I don't feel bad for you that this stuff, you know, again, it's not out of your control. It is your choices that are putting you in this thing. Um, but yeah, overall, like the, you know, the experience of it, it was just like, oh, this is, this, this is cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm glad it was a movie and not a series, <laughs> you know, that that's, that's one thing that made it better, more enjoyable than breaking bad is I knew that once it was done, it was done. Not, okay. There's another three fucking seasons. I've got to go through with this. God damn, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, but I, another thing I noticed too, that I was curious about is I thought it said it, it takes place in like 2012, 2015, something like that. And it had such a big, like, 80s vibe, like, both with the music and, like, it definitely had that, like, oh, we're going to make it look like this is a VHS tape you're watching, you know, like, with the filter that was used, what you know, and, and, and like, a lot of the, the clothes and the, the style of it. And it just, yeah, I was just, like, very confused about that. I was like, wait, is, is this the 80s or is it not the 80s? So, you know, I mean, aside from the fact that, that he had an iPhone it was like, it could have taken place in the eighties. I feel like, well, you know, and the, the, you know, the, the basketball player who was probably not a basketball player in the eighties, maybe he wasn't even born in the eighties, you know, at that point. But, but aside from that, it was just kind of like this, this doesn't feel like it took place, you know, like in this same century, you know? Mm. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was that part, that part was really weird, but uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think those are, those are all my, my first impressions that I got. Do you want to go over your, first impressions a little more when you first encountered the film or do you want to cover a second impression coming back to it from the podcast? Sure. I can do both. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So Joel beat me to it. Right. I think like he said, we were planning to go see it. Um, and you know, he got the head start. So I don't know, like I said, I was, I was in on it regardless, right. Because Adam Sandler was there and sports were there. So I, I was in, um, but got the text from him about it just being a barrage and that kind of like hyped it up for me. And it was like, okay, you know, wasn't really sure what I expected. Um, you know, and I think for me seeing it, uh, just having been so familiar with, with Adam's other work. Um, right. So even punch drunk love, when that came out, I think I was like 10 or 11. And obviously I was looking for Adam Sandler movies for comedy and laughs and stuff. So I saw that. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what, what is he even doing? Um, so I didn't like that one. Uh, I don't know why I haven't gone back to watch it. I just haven't yet, but I need to do that. And I feel like I might 
like it now that I'm grown and can appreciate a little bit more, but um, didn't like Punch Drunk Love or some of the other serious ones that he's done. Um, so I think first impression from that aspect, I was very pleasantly surprised because I loved his performance in this one. Um, yeah, I just everything about it, I love the story itself, as you guys mentioned, and, and just the, the, the drama there. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. And I, I did feel bad because I know how Joel feels about movies where things go wrong. I think in college we had a debate about, because I, I like Meet the Parents and found out <laughs> that he doesn't really care for Meet the Parents because it makes him anxious. And I'm like, how can you, it's very funny. Um, he's like, no, it's very stressful. And so just that balance of like stress versus humor or like this one's just flat out stress the whole time. So that was an interesting um you know, angle to see it from. And, and I'm sorry to do, to make you see it again uh, with that lens. But um, no, it's just one that I enjoyed uh, watching. And then I think this is my third time seeing it. I watched it another time in between with another friend. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I enjoy it every time I, you know, you get to the final scene um, with the bet and like, I've seen the movie two times before that. I know how the game turns out itself, but like, I'm still stressed that every time I see it, like, doesn't matter that it's a, a, you know, a 10 year old game or that I've seen the outcome and see him win, like to get to the end and to see the stress of the guys that are trapped in the room and they're sweating and they're not happy that he's winning, even if it means they're going to get paid, right? Like he's stuck them in that room and they're just going to have to deal with it um to see it, it might even be more stressful later seeing it coming because the first time it's kind of like the band-aid ripped off like surprised the shock and awe of seeing him get shot at the end of it um whereas seeing it again the second and the third time it's like okay i know he dies but like watching the build-up and watching the joy in in his actions and him thinking that he's finally gotten a way out talking to his girlfriend like everyone's happy knowing that it's all going to come to an end for him real quick after that. So um, still enjoyable, but I think you guys all nailed it with like, it's not enjoyable for the experience, but I still enjoy the movie itself. I think that's probably the best way to put a movie like this. We all seem to be in agreement. <laughs> it, you, uh, Tim and Joel, you both reminded me more of Lahane actually talking about, you know, about uncut gems Man, watching Lahaina a second time and I haven't gone back would be really stressful knowing how yeah. it ends. And also like just the anxiety of those those situations that they're the in. Whole thing, yeah. But again, Lahaina is about the the environment they're in right. more than about their own decisions most of the time. Right. Um I I was thinking about the informant with Matt Damon, if any of you saw that, except the informant is yeah. very much a dark comedy. Mm-hmm. It is sort of this this idiot just keeps doing dumb things <laughs> that make the situation worse. But I Zeke, you see you're nodding. Have you you saw that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a yeah. good comparison. But yeah, it's much more that. lighthearted than this is, you know? Um, right. I just I, I can't really pin it down. Maybe burn after reading. But again, mm-hmm. that is a lot more lighthearted, right? Cohen Brothers doing one of their weird sort of flat comedies, right? Yeah. That might be my favorite of theirs. Yeah, because I feel like they, it, it, it definitely, yeah, like you, you didn't know where things were going. You just know things were getting worse. Getting worse, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And 
you know, it has that sense of how on earth did you come to the conclusion that this is the best course of action yeah. right now? And that's why, yeah, my favorite part of that is when J.K. Simmons at the end. So it's like, so what, like, what do we learn from this? Don't, don't do it again. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so I, I'm glad to hear we all felt the same way though, about this and about the, the nature of the film. Um, I want to talk a little more about Adam Sandler. If that's, uh, I mean, obviously we were going to, but if y'all don't mind me deviating right now, like I said, when I'd heard he was, I, I did, I had no idea he'd done serious roles before. I just didn't see any of them or pay much attention to him. I don't know. He just kind of existed. And the moment it was suggested, oh yeah, he's in this really serious role in this drama. I was like, oh yeah, I. Uh, great it just clicked in a way that it didn't for other people right i think the first time i saw steve carell in a serious role was in a film called the way way back which is excellent um but also has plenty of humor in it it's a very light film sometimes it has its dark moments you know but it's about just this kid and his family and they're taking a vacation up in the new england shore right in the summer so it's one of those sort of coming of age films and i kept waiting for steve carell to crack a joke or something but he didn't he was just kind of a bad guy just throughout the film, just an a-hole, you know, and it didn't, it didn't click. I had to watch the film two or three times before I could buy into that. But with Adam Sandler, the moment I thought of it, I went, yeah, I absolutely see it. That works. And I was just grabbed by every inch of the performance. It felt kind of like the, his comedy roles, because obviously he, in, in, in his comedy, he draws on his own real life, which is very New York and very, Jewish and has pressures of all kinds, but he brings it together into caricature. And this role felt like, like meeting one of those people on the street, right? Where you go, I've seen you in a movie and I thought it was fake because it was so over the top or idiotic or whatever, but you went into them and they are real and you sort of have to suffer their existence for the duration of your interaction, <laughs> right? He just poured all of that into Howard Ratner and it was amazing. It was something about what you mentioned, Tim, even when he's on the street, he's always going. He's texting somebody. He's talking to somebody. He's always making the next. He just never stops. Whatever this thing is, balled up into the human-shaped object that is Howard Ratner, it just <laughs> never stops. And it's exhausting to be around. Yeah, I, I Zeke and I have talked to Sig Nauseam. Like I, I chose the Jim Carrey route <laughs> in childhood, not Adam Sandler. Um, but like, as I saw a certain thing, like I, I love Waterboy. I think Waterboy is one of the best comedy movies of the last 20, 25 years. Um, and like, for me with Sandman, I, and I call him that cause I think it's a, a fun little, like his friends call him that. I don't know why I, I've appropriated it that way, but the, I've always saw him as kind of a parallel force in movies to like Ben Stiller and same kind of background had hits in comedy about the same times and kind of reached the same kind of heights. And then when Ben started doing more serious stuff, I was like, this is the potential for these guys. They really understand how films are made and they really understand the comedy thing. And then drama is a different part of that tool and you could really get into it. So when Ben did Tropic Thunder and directed it, I was blown away. I was like, this dude is going to be, and then when he did Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that's a movie I love. And it's it's subtle, and it's poignant, and it's surreal, but it's very contained. So that's kind of what I've been wanting to see from Adam, because I, I 
I think he has the same kind of potential, same kind of skill set, right? And so I I had seen Click kind of around when it came out. And that movie has a really unique, poignant performance from Adam. You get to see him age. And when he when he's kind of aged up and playing this kind of man full of regret, like, first of all, in aged up makeup, he looks like Pacino. That blew me away. Like, he seemed like an aged Pacino. And just the way he played it, it had a lot of gravitas, and you, you felt all of the regret. And I was like, there, there's, a, there's something behind these eyes. Like, this guy really, really can play the instrument that way. And then he, he did Ridiculous Six, and we were back. We were, were not back, but we were going a little, da- like, downhill and messed up. And, like, he was one of the first people to sign, like, exclusive deals with Netflix. So he was churning stuff out, and Ridiculous Six was the, the absolute worst thing that i think he's ever done i haven't watched it i refuse to watch it because of its treatment of native americans in it but that was like well i i i, I don't know should we be supporting it and he like the grown-up movies are fun but it's very much the same kind of like he he's paid all this money to pay get all of his friends to put it, it regardless of how good they are in their career still and then they put them in like this tropical location and whatever happens happens people really like sandler they like working with him he's a nice guy he, he has a really good reputation in hollywood but like that that film those films didn't really a- appeal to me so when i saw the trailer for this i was like oh shit this is this is what i've been waiting for what i've been hoping for is this kind of role from him and and I heard a review from somebody that I, I really respect, and he was like, "It it's 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 exhausting. It's ter- It's harrowing." And I was like, "Well, that I didn't need any more of a reason to go see it." And I, I like I said, I walked out of it just sick to my stomach. It was just such a, and it it is it is so much more than just his performance in it. But again, watching it again, hit like Sandman can act. Like he is he's a great actor. And I, I would, I really want to, I want to see Punch Drunk Love. I haven't seen it, and people have always said, like, that's that's where the chops were. Is that that's that's my Sandler origin story. I think that's a when you mentioned Click, uh, that clicked for me because I, um, I'm notorious for crying at movies, and I think that's, I mean, there weren't other Adam Sandler movies to cry about, but I remember when I saw that as a guy. I think I saw it at a drive-in, um, and I just remember crying because you get to the end and you like hits you with some serious lines and you can tell he's feeling kind of the remorse of skipping parts of his life. And, um, I don't know, that hit me. <laughs> I was probably too young for that to hit me as much as it did, but it, uh, it did. And it was, I, you know, it was more in line with what I was used to from Adam. So, um, I appreciated that more than, like I said, punch drunk love at that age, because it was still humor, 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 and you get some laughs, but then at the end it hit me. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I I think that's a good example of like him starting to show his chops and, um, you know, and, and showing off his range a little bit. Um, and I think now, right, I think going back, if I watch Punk Drunk Club and some of the others that are a little more serious, I'll probably see that that was there the whole time and, and have a better appreciation. Um, the other thing, though, I, I have the biggest beef with the Academy voters um, for many reasons, right? But like, on top of the Oscar so white thing and on top of like just all the male nominations. Um, there was that New York times article the year that this was, would have been up for nominations and they interviewed people 
interviewed the voters about why um, they voted certain ways. And so they asked someone about Adam Sandler not being nominated for best actor for this role. And the person just flat out said, and it flat out admitted to, he said, yeah, you know, we know him from all these goofy roles and it wouldn't be right to vote for him as best actor because of his history. Wow. And that just, yeah, just rubbed me such a wrong way. They had a similar one with Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy um, did Dolomite that year, which is another great movie. What a movie. Yeah. And um, they're, their their reasoning for that one was probably worse. It was a different person, I think, but they said they didn't vote for Eddie one because of his common, you know, his past in comedy. So, um, you know, didn't want to shine the light there, but the worst part, they were like, Oh yeah, Eddie has been making the rounds. You know, he went on SNL for the first time in years and kind of promoted his movie. And the person was like, yeah, I didn't vote for him because I thought he was too showboaty about how he was, um, you know, trying to get his movie out there and trying to make a case for it. So, like, I don't know, the fact that, like, because I think objectively, right, this is a, a very good Adam Sandler performance, a very good acting performance in general. Um, so for it to not get nominated because people say, oh, yeah, 10 years ago, he used to, you know, stutter and, and do silly characters. And so for that reason, now we can't nominate him. I think that rubs me the wrong way. And I think that's a knock on the range that he showed in this movie and a knock on just I don't know what a, what a performance it was. So we haven't that, that makes too me cranky about the Oscars in general or about awards shows on this podcast. I don't necessarily want to deviate too deeply at the moment, but it's always been a little odd that the Academy Awards became the big ones because you know there are other awards, right? There are mm-hmm. the uh, the Screen Actors Guild, for example, right? Just there are in all Golden these awards, mm-hmm. right? Are voted on by different bodies of people with different, not to excuse the Oscars at all, but with different lives and perspectives and interests, right? And so it's always sort of, I'm always most interested to see the SAG Awards for actors. And I'm really interested in the Academy Awards for the technicians, right? The sound mixing, Mm -hmm. the special effects and the editing and et cetera, right? And it always Mm -hmm. feels a little weird that the one of these different units just became the thing because it doesn't, the, the people doing the voting don't necessarily they're a huge group of people and they're not, shouldn't be the be all end all. I, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, yeah. you know, the Oscars has certainly taken some hits lately. Maybe it would be really nice to just see a slate of multiple shows all treated with equal weight. Mm-hmm. would be great. We'll see if that happens by the Oscars diminishing or the other. Or 14 one hour award shows in place of the one 14 hour right. show. Sure. Yeah. Or the other I'm shows. I'm looking at who was bigger. nominated that year, and it's Remy mm-hmm. Malik for Bohemian. Okay. Bale for Vice, Bradley Cooper for Star is Born, Defoe for At Eternity's Gate, and Vigo Mortensen for Green Book. Yeah. Because you see, those aren't, those are good performances, up. but. I had it pulled up too. I thought the year that he would, he would have been in, it was the, um, so Leo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver, Marriage Story. Was it uh, 2020 what, rather than 2019? Yeah, I think that's when it qualified for based on okay. it came out. Then um, don't, don't listen to but me. I don't way. know well, what my times are. <laughs> <laughs> well, then they do it weird too, right? Based on when the movie releases and if they hit the cutoff or not. Um, but yeah, Leo, uh, he was Adam better Driver. than all the ones I just listed. That's, that's the point I wanted to say. So I've got that one here. Yeah, we have... Antonio Banderas in Pain and Glory, mm-hmm. Leo DiCaprio Once Upon a Time, Adam Driver Marriage Story, Joaquin Phoenix for Joker, and Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. So, yeah, Which one of the are... questions I want to ask you guys tonight was 
and I, you know, I think I've seen three of those. Uh, I still haven't seen Pain and Glory or The Two Popes. So I don't know that I can necessarily weigh in on all of it, but like, just was curious to see what you thought about the snub and what you thought about, like, just to do some, like, you know, revisionist history ourselves, right? Should he have been nominated against those guys? Not necessarily have one against all of them, but at least would you swap him out for one of them? You know, would you give him a nomination expanded to six? I don't know. I think he should have been nominated. I'm ready to take, uh, I don't know who I take out, but I'll take out somebody. I don't care. Joker won? Joaquin yeah. won for the Joker. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I'd take him out and put in Sandler, <laughs> honestly. I I only just saw Joker for the first time recently, and I I think my best summation is underwhelming. Which isn't to say the film was bad, but it didn't really feel like a related directly to the Joker or Batman or comics oh, it at all. It felt like <laughs> Taxi Driver with the word Joker put on it. And that, which it was good. It was excellent. You know, the score was phenomenal. The sense of place, the sets, I mean, oh my God, that was excellent, right? It felt properly like those pictures you see of like late 80s New York. You know, I mean, it was brilliant. The sense of social decay, the whole thing, you know, the performance was good. But yeah, it felt shoehorned into this Joker premise. So that's that's part of why I take him off. But on the other hand, to be fair to Joaquin Phoenix on his own, none of that is his fault, and his performance was still excellent. So I don't know. I, I've seen all of those, but Pain and Glory. Um, and Driver in Marriage Story is killer. Everybody in that movie is killer. That movie is like what a novel concept. White Hollywood people are getting a divorce, and it sucks. <laughs> like okay, let, let, a, a tired premise, but Lord Dern is outstanding in that movie. Scar Joe is outstanding in that movie and driver is outstanding. like that. He deserves to be up there. I would say, I think once upon a time in Hollywood, Leo fucking kills that movie as foot fetishy as that movie is. And, and just classic Tarantino being Tarantino, like what Leo does in that movie is phenomenal, but I don't think they're ever going to give him another Academy award. They gave him the one, they had to fight a bear and eat it to win it. But like that, that's, and then two popes I really enjoyed. I think Jonathan price is an underrated actor. He's great in everything he, he does. Um, yeah. Joaquin is, is a strange, like I enjoy that film and this is not a, an Oscars podcast or a, <laughs> let's talk about these other films podcasts, but it's a good portrayal. It's a compelling character, but like we haven't seen a Howard, ratner ever before we've seen jokers before and like i i don't know like i we've seen jaded discarded misanthropes before are you talking about howard are you talking about joker (laughs) no joker yeah like i said i it's like taxi driver with a new coat of paint almost yeah i i would say it's closer to king of comedy but nobody's seen king of comedy (laughs) yeah no you're right there are some direct allusions no there definitely is i i that's I, I'm just I'm just being facetious yeah. and shitty. <laughs> I'm did we Tim? We didn't really get your Adam Sandler origin story, and we haven't done uh, favorite scenes yet. Not to like, um, as far as for me, like Adam Sandler was kind of the the core, I guess, of my not my age generation of SNL, but like 
when I was watching it. You know, I remember that was the first time I was aware of like, you know, my parents talking about the good old days of SNL and the characters they liked and, you know, like, like Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin and, you know, all of them kind of going off to do the movies that, you know, that I had seen as a kid, but I never saw those people on SNL, except if it was like, you know, some sort of rerun or, you know, I think one time we had like a tape that had like, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy, you know, doing his Mr. Rogers character and Gumby and that <laughs> type of stuff. But like, Who is was, it? yeah, yeah. But, you know, but it was just also that whole kind of like, you know, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting experience being aware of that generation gap where it's like, oh, you know, you know, like my parents not liking Adam Sandler and all the other actors who were on at that time, who then went to go on and become famous, just like the people from their era. And then, you know, uh, seeing people who, who were part of that Adam Sandler generation looking at the next cast and being like, Oh, this, you know, these guys aren't any good. You know, back in my day, we had an Adam Sandler and this and that. And, um, and to be fair, there was a pretty rough period, I think after like Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and all them left. Um, but then, you know, we got the sort of SNL Renaissance, which came, you know, and I, I always point to when Seth Meyers started moved, became the head writer, like I think, which is early two thousands, like, if anyone ever tells you that everything after Adam Sandler was, was shit, there was a, a ton of shit, but early two thousands is fucking gold. Like that's like Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig. Like, so, but anyway, as you know, no matter what year it is, SNL hasn't been good for seven years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so that was kind of, yeah, that was sort of my, you know, as I was growing up and old enough to stay up late enough to watch SNL, like it was his cast, you know, you know, like, yeah, like, uh, you know, so, so, you know, Billy Madison and the, the, the water, uh, not, not water, but uh, Tommy boy, you know, with Chris Farley, like, you know, those were the films I was, I was seeing as my generation of SNL people were moving on and becoming famous in that sense. Um, um, I was definitely there for like, for the beginning, uh, loved Billy Madison. I've probably seen that more times than I can count. Um, you know, used to quote it endlessly. Um, Happy Gilmore, I wasn't as much of a fan of, I think because I feel like it did lean a little bit heavy on the the golf and sort of sports nature of it, which I, I feel like, oh, Zeke probably loved it because of this. But yeah, for me, it's kind of like, okay, like I, I don't need that much of a plot. You know, I don't need <laughs> to explain, like have a, a motivation. Like, you know, I, I'm happy with him being an idiot and he wants to go back to elementary school, you know, like whatever. It was ridiculous, but I'm there for it. Um, however, I definitely came back around when it was like with uh, The Wedding Singer, which I feel like is still probably my second favorite that that he's in because it was just like, you know, again, you get that hint of, oh, he can act. Like he's not just a goofball. Like he became lovable in that you know and you you felt bad for him and you were rooting for him like i don't know that i was rooting for him and billy Madison. like no you're a fucking idiot you should not run this company but i'm gonna watch you be a fucking idiot and laugh my ass off whereas yeah like with 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 wedding singer you're like yeah like he should be with julia yeah like you know and and it was even though it was still a comedy i feel like it was enough of a, a change in direction that it was like okay he's not a one-trick pony you know and then i uh i I also love Big Daddy, even though it was kind of a return to him being a goofball, but, you know, a more realistic goofball this time, I think. And I think that's where it kind of struck this really nice balance, you know. Um, and the fact that it wasn't about a girl this time, it was, you know, kind of about a kid and, you know, it was kind of for a girl, but also him, 
I feel like he really grew as a person in that film because he was trying to like do right by this kid and realize how much he was fucking this kid up by letting him do it. He's like, Oh wait, I actually have to be a dad and you know, all those things. And, um, you know, so I, even with his comedic roles, I still really appreciated watching him kind of grow. Um, I think after 50 first dates, I kind of fell off. Cause like, I've never seen click. I've never seen, there was one where like he was the dad and Andy Samberg was the kid and like Andy Samberg was boy. all, yeah, that one. Um, uh, the, the one was no one with like Jennifer Aniston and some like model or something like that. And he's trying to have Jennifer Aniston pretend that it's he, she's his wife. So we can get, so by that point, I think I was just kind of like, okay, I'm kind of done with this stuff. Um, and I had seen punch drunk love and, I don't know. If, I don't think that's what turned me off. Cause I think 50 first dates came after that, or maybe it was the idea of returning from this thing that wasn't really a comedy to a romantic comedy. And I was like, yes, I'm on board for that. But I forget, I forget why I just kind of stopped being interested in his stuff. And that's why I hadn't seen any of his later stuff. And even with this, it was like, Oh, cool. Good for Adam Sandler. And probably wasn't going to watch it though. Just cause like, you know, I wasn't as, intrigued and it's like good good for you man for doing something different try to grow as an actor but it's just uh, by that point i was just kind of like um I'm, I'm done following you being interested in everything you do and i'd also kind of i just this just now occurred to me that whole like you know better to burn out than fade away kind of thing like with chris farley it's just like oh man you know you always kind of i feel like you hold him in this high regard because it was like he he kind of peaked and then died so quickly after that that it's like that's sort of the image you have whereas with like adam sandler and again this was before i saw this film which i was like okay yeah he still got it you know it was just kind of like a little bit of well man what are you doing you know are you just kind of petering out or you know um so i was i was really happy to see that uh you know he's still yeah he has the chops he's still got it he's still you know yeah he's he's just an actor you know it's not like oh, you're just this caricature that's just this one thing and that's all you can do. Like, he can he can do whatever he needs to do. Oh, I totally forgot about You Don't Mess With the Zohan. That was actually for a while <laughs> right up there. Like, that was such a weird... And I think I forget about it because so few people that I know have seen it and I don't get to talk about it as much as, like, you know, Billy Madison or The Wedding Singer. Um, but yeah, You Don't Mess With the Zohan. Like, that, that was fucking brilliant. Like it's second to second like like oh man like i i never expected it to be it had no right to be that good you know um but yeah i I loved it and so uh yeah so i mean i definitely enjoyed like so much of his stuff and i i yeah i really don't know why i kind of he dropped off my radar and i didn't really care for a while but um yeah I'm, i'm like i said i'm glad to see that he's still he's still doing it you know he still can do it you know and he he never stopped doing it you know even though, even though I stopped paying attention, you know, he still had it, you know. The film that did that for me was Murder Mystery. Oh, see, I don't even know about that. That's from his Netflix deal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, That's the one that brought you back, or? Yeah, that I, it was just uh-huh. the first Adam Sandler film I'd seen in, like, 15 years, and went, mm-hmm. oh, he's still doing this, and also, he's still really good at it. Yeah. It yeah, that one was solid. Excellent. I like that mm-hmm. one. That's probably his best of the Netflix originals, I think. Mm. You go yeah. check that out. Yeah, it's really fun. Do we want to move on to favorite scenes? I have oh, one yeah. more quick thing, if yeah, we, if, if I can. I think, uh, Tim, you, you queued it up pretty well. Um, so talking about, right, Happy Gilmore, that was definitely one, and the Waterboyer ones that I loved even more because of the sports angles. Um, so I did want to get all of your takes, like, and not to 
you know, put you on the spot or anything, but a similar question that I asked when we watched Hoop Dreams, right? Like, um, and it seems like you enjoyed this one, so not super concerned, but like, for me, the, you know, knowing the game itself and then knowing like the ins and outs of the bet that he made kind of like added, it just kind of heightened the drama a little bit. Um, I think I would have enjoyed it either way. Um, I've watched it twice now with my wife, Natalie, and she's um, enjoyed it both times, you know, regardless of the the sports betting angle. Um, so I was just curious to get your take on um, how you all felt, right? Did, did it take away from it? having that much of a sports focus or sports gambling focus or didn't really matter because the drama was just that full speed anyway. Uh, just curious there. Why don't you start us off there, Joel? Outside of Zeke, you have the most Zeke related sports experience. So <laughs> Zeke related sports experience <laughs> yeah. is a very yeah. specific yeah. designation and it's not inaccurate. <laughs> Zeke and I have seen a lot of <laughs> games together. Um, for me, like, this kind of unlocked something for me is because like I, I watch sports on TV very rarely, unless it's a very like for when, when I was really into lacrosse, I was watching lacrosse, any away game on TV. And it was also like a search, like it's not widely televised. And I, we had season tickets. So I went to every home game that I could. Um, and it, it's kind of more like an event thing. Like I, I, I would watch football, and then I realized not watching football made me happier because I, I, I follow the Broncos and that is a, a labor of love. Um, but I've never really watched baseball unless it's on TV, unless it's like the world series or something. Same with like when world series or uh, world cup co- soccer comes, like that's always like a fun kind of like in, but for that, like it was really interesting to watch that this time and kind of it unlocks like sports betting and a reason to watch a game that you, I mean, Sandler says it about like me, a Knicks fan rooting for the Celtics. How weird is that? So it's also like you, you're watching the game so much more closely because you're counting rebounds, because you're counting individual points from a specific person. You're actually, you bet on the tip off. So because there's so much about the game that's unlocked that way, because every part of it matters to what you've bet on it that was a really kind of interesting realization to come to watching it this time. It's like, Oh, this is how you watch. Cause my dad Saturday, Saturday is college football day. He doesn't bet on it. He doesn't have a bracket, but he puts it on and he watches it all day. And I'm like, well, how do you really like, I follow the pack 12 and the pack 10 and like trying to figure out like who who's up and who's down. Like he, I think he just enjoys football. Like that's why he watches it. And it's nice for him to watch football that he doesn't have, a vested interest in because it's, it's satisfying whoever wins. It's fun. Cause it was, it was good football, but for me, it's just like not watching it with a stake in it and, and only having like, Oh shit, I really want them to win. And then being disappointed. Like you kind of, you can tune in and out. You're checking your phone, but like the way that he watches games for the, both the big bets he places, it's really active and engaging. And I think that's part of why that last sequence is so engaging and so dynamic even though it's three guys caught in a security door and him kind of moving around and they're watching a game. Like it's so dynamic because every part of the game is, is important and there's a vested interest in it. So that, that aspect this time watching it was really apparent. It's like, Oh, I, I get it now. This is why whenever there's a game on people who don't care about the team are watching it. Cause they have like, there's, 
with the parlay system. And again, we'll, we'll need a tutorial on that at some point, but like, because every aspect of the game money was riding on that made it so much more dynamic. So, and I mean, KG that, that we need to have that discussion. Like Kevin Garnett is incredible in this Wait, Like they fucking basketball players are really good actors now. Um, not to talk shit about Space Jam and Kazam because I love I both gonna, those movies. I was going to say Kazam. <laughs> both of them are awful performances. But like you think about LeBron in uh, Trainwreck and and KG in this. KG's incredible. Like mm-hmm. he should like he's making way too much money to retire. But when he retires, he could act no problem. Like just outstanding performance there. And I thought so, his role was going to be a lot smaller. You know, yeah, he's thought, huge. Mm-hmm. He's a big he just part shows of it. up and like does the thing he does in real life where he like looks around and shops for things and then leaves and like, oh, cool guest appearance. And then he kept coming back into the film. Yeah. It was great. And drove a lot of the plot of the film. Mm-hmm. And oh, he's yeah. also the, the subject for Adam selling. And yeah. you, you see the magic of Howard. He could sell water on an iceberg like like the dude is is just good at it and and you can see in garnett's portrayal that he he's he's hooked he's in and he's looking at the the, it's in the, the eyes you know, like There's something he, about his eyes yeah he's great just they nailed it they yeah. do a really good speaking of it like, like the close-up where um you know he's got the loop and he or what is it called loop yeah yep. and he's like looking at the diamond the and it's loop. just a close up on his his best one yeah don't break that um he's just yeah just i don't know he conveys so much emotion um yeah quick tangent so i was reading up on why they picked that game or like because it's obviously a true game and like to build that's one thing i love about this too not to just go on to a whole nother subject we'll get back on track but the fact that they I don't know. I like this revisionist history. It's almost like historical fiction, right? Because they said, okay, here's a real NBA game that happened. How do we tell a story around it? And so the original plan was to go with Joel Embiid, um, a current player, but then the, the shooting got pushed back to during NBA season. So they said, okay, well, we have to build this movie around another athlete now. Let's see. And so they looked at different um, former basketball players who had expressed some interest in acting. Um, and Kevin Garnett was one. And so they said, okay, um, now let's look back and see, let's what find a, a, yeah, a stretch of games. Cause, and this was another fun part. They said, we need to have a game where he does really well, right. When he has the opal and then he needs to have an off night because he loses the opal and then another really great game. And they said, well, looking at, you know, KG's year that year, that was rough because he didn't have a lot of bad games, but they were able to pinpoint that series and say, okay, he had a good night, bad night, good night. Let's build the movie around these nights. And they needed uh, also needed a series or a set of games where they would be geographically close to New York City so they could interact with them, right? Because if it was during three games in the regular season and he had a game against the Knicks and then a game against the Sixers and then he was off here in Denver playing the Nuggets, that doesn't work, right? So you needed to have the series against Philly so they could drive to Philly, drive back to New York, like... So, yeah, to me, that was fascinating to figure out, like, you know, and I think the fact that he stepped up and was like, hi, I want to act (laughs) is better than if you build around, okay, let's not to knock MJ, but like, here's the biggest (laughs) basketball player at the time. We need to build Space Jam around Michael Jordan. Oh, he's not that great of an actor. (laughs) Um, 
right? It worked out kind of the opposite way where they got lucky and boom, you get a phenomenal, phenomenal KG performance and can build from there. So is he retired thought that was fun. now? He's retired now. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, talking I'm, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> no. and I'm not sure if he's on, I want to say he does stuff like, um, you know, like the halftime show, pregame shows, like as a commentator, um, I think he's been, has had some appearances like that, but I think you're right. I think if he wants to settle into a nice little acting gig here and there, he can, he could do it. I think the only problem would be his height. Like it, it there's some forced <laughs> perspective to be in like <laughs> typecast as a tall guy. <laughs> no, nah, look, they, they put Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen next to each other. You can do it. <laughs> do anything. You could be Gandalf in the, the next Lord of the Rings reboot. <laughs> and that way you don't have to do forced perspective between Gandalf and the humans. Just that just, big. Yeah. <laughs> next time you watch something with, you know, an ensemble and a love interest like that, pay attention to the height difference because if anything tom Cruise is it well, <laughs> i was just gonna make that joke <laughs> right but if their height is different High in five. the group shots pay attention to how different it is when they kiss because it's probably suddenly <laughs> much closer they put the shorter one on a box you know mm-hmm. did the i guess they scene. used to do that with angela kinsey in the office like so many times she's like looking over some files to look at pam and like judge her they put her on a box because she's so <laughs> tiny <laughs> yeah whatever works you know so, Tim, what about you? How did this sports uh, aspect catch you? Well, oddly enough, like, I, I'm, I'm thinking back, and I've, I've seen, I don't want to say, like, a good amount of sports movies, but but considering who I am and, you know, my relationship with sports, um, like, I've, I've definitely, and, and this must be, like, you know, um, sort of kudos to the directors and the writers, but, like, the sports movies I've seen, like, I've been just as engaged in the film, even though I don't care about the actual sports, you know, like, uh, like, like, uh, any given Sunday or like, uh, the replacements, you know, things like that, where it's like, okay, like we're kind of building this up. You're kind of following the team. And I think because a lot of the time, yeah, it's like, it's not like how well or bad they're doing is being translated enough in the film, you know, and through their, through their performances, I guess, where it's like, I don't have to know, physically what just happened was a bad thing because the players are disappointed and that's kind of what I'm following. And then even, you know, a lot of times just the action of the game. Um, I think because, you know, they're able, that, that's part of why I think I don't like sports is like when I was the, the, the drumline instructor and we'd have to play, you know, at URI, like the marching band would have to play at the football games. They're what, like three fucking hours long. And I'm just standing out there in the hot sun for three hours, like playing occasionally. So if you can still distill a whole game into like 10 minutes, like, yeah, great. I'm there for that. You know, <laughs> like show me all the touchdowns and all the baskets and I'll cheer for those. Yeah. Like it's all the in-between shit that I don't care about, you know? So, so I think for this, you know, it was, it was like, part of it was also like any other sports game, sports movie where it's like, okay. Like, and I, I, I do know a little bit about how sports work and, um, also, like when I was younger, uh, basketball was the game that I enjoyed physically playing the most. Um, cause I feel like it was, you know, it wasn't like football where there's like violence is an aspect of the game. You know, it was just kind of like there, there's a physical aspect, but I also feel like I, I was able to practice the skill of like making baskets and get better at it and train my muscle memory. And so I, I felt like I, the more I played and practiced basketball, the actual, the better I actually got, you know, whereas like, you know, you know, I play football sometimes. I feel like I was just never good at throwing a ball to someone, you know, uh, you know, or or like with baseball, like I just never felt like I 
really got how to get better at hitting a ball with a bat. But like with basketball, like, you know, we had a, my dad got me a hoop for our backyard. So it's like, I could practice playing basketball. So I actually enjoyed the physical act of playing basketball. So there's at least a little bit of a connection where like when I'm watching people play, I still, it's not like I sit and actually watch basketball games, but I think, you know, having a little bit more of an appreciation of what it took to get better at basketball and playing it um, and knowing the rules a little, a little bit better, you know, about dribbling and traveling and stuff like that. It's like, Oh, okay. I understand that. Um, so, you know, so some of those things, I think I can appreciate the aspects of the game. Although having said that, like we're not really following the, the game. I think because of the betting, you're not following the game from the perspective of the players. Like, Oh, I hope this team of people wins. You're, you're following it from his perspective, the person who bet the money, you know? So it's like, you're, 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 you're rooting for the team, but not yeah, It's, it's like one step removed kind of. Um, so again, you're kind of reading his reaction to things. So even if I wasn't able to follow what was actually happening in the game, like, but the fact that I'm watching him get excited over these little actions was kind of what I was, was following. Um, so yeah, so it was still, I think just as engaging. Um, I also had someone tell me at one point, I forget who it was because I was like saying that I don't like sports and it's like, Oh, you need to bet on them. You know, then, then you care about the game and it's like, okay, that makes sense, but I, I don't want that. You know, like I don't, I don't want to have to care about something that I don't care about just because I'm going to lose a bunch of money and, you know, be fucked over. Cause I'm, I feel like I'm the type of person I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's a good thing. I don't have a gambling addiction because I would be that person who's just like in it to a loan shark for like a hundred thousand dollars because I fucking suck whenever luck is something that comes into play, you know, like like whatever money you give me, I will lose it, you know? And it's not a matter of like, and I think that's maybe why I'm not addicted. I feel like you have to win enough to give you that taste of like, Oh yeah, well, I got to keep going, you know? And it's like, Oh, I have $20 to spend at Foxwoods. Okay. Oh, look, I won $3. Oh. And then I lost $23. Okay. Let's, let's go home. <laughs> you know, like. I, I was going to say, that's the thing about people that bet, right. Is like, if, if to someone they might say, Oh, you're just throwing away your money. But to them, they're like, Oh no, I know what's going to happen. Like, I know this is going to hit. And I think that's Howard's problem, right? Every time he's like, Oh, of course this six leg parlay is going to hit. Of course, these three things are going to happen. Of course, this is going to, of course, this a hundred thousand is going to become a million. Like I know what I'm doing because I'm, you know, and I think when you get to that level, it's, as you can see, you end up shot. So yeah. <laughs> I was well, scrolling through the Wikipedia page. Um, for Uncut Gems, I noticed no super major nominations at all for any part of this film, not just Sandler, which makes me wonder if, you know, the issue wasn't Adam Sandler, but maybe just some other reason the whole film was sort of ignored. But also, interestingly, I, well, I found something for later in the podcast, um, but Speaking of your sort of the, the the serendipity surrounding Kevin Garnett, apparently they wanted Adam Sandler from the start and then couldn't get him and then eventually got him. But uh, the sports thing didn't, didn't throw me off because they, like Tim said, right? They say, oh, yeah, I'm doing a parlay or whatever. He uses this word. But you know it means he's betting on this, on blank, and it's going to win or not. And that's all you need to know. So that works. But in keeping with Kevin Garnett's performance being really excellent, I think the other two performances that really carried the whole thing 
along with Adam Sandler and KG, were the mistress, Julia, played by a real-life Julia, Julia Fox, and then the bookie, and, uh, no, the, the loan shark, uh, played by Eric Bogosian. Don't know if I said that right. was an actual loan shark? <laughs> the guys yeah. who rough up Sandler did that professionally. And I did they, not know that. <laughs> I, I was watching a few interviews today, and they were like, the stuntmen were like, yeah, you could just pretend to hit him, and he'll go like this. And they're like, it says in the script we fucking hit him. We're fucking hitting him. <laughs> so much of the, the, the act, there's a lot of never acted before people in this film. And yeah. it, the, I, I'm talking about Arno, though. Yeah, no, oh, Arno, his, his no, brother. Yeah. He's a, he's a professional actor. Yeah. Right, right. His brother. Yeah. Yep. But yes, the, the, the loan sharks were good too. The, the, the thugs, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's something about the. The, and, and, and some of the credit belongs to the script here too but both of those characters you know they end up very like like they're not just painted on you know the mistress could just get mad at him and they break up and the lone shark could just be the shark but instead he's family and the mistress is a person and she has her own feelings and feelings for howard and they all everybody stays present and relevant throughout the film and the script does some of that work but the actors do the rest and they do it with their faces and their body language and their words and it works really well it really all comes together so the sports thing sort of becomes just one more factor right that's driving these people through their relationships and it worked really well yeah i can't say whether it was a nice treat for someone who knows what it's talking about right but i can say it didn't impede the film at all not for me. That's, yeah, I think you made a good point about, and, and Tim as well, but just like, so the, the action that they show, right, of, act, of the game itself, it's framed within, we need this to happen, then they'll cut to the screen and show that thing happening. Um, and then for the bet, right, I think they do a good job of not really get, getting caught in the details, but saying he's putting this much money down. If things go well, it's going to be this much money, right? And I think they do throw out the terms and make it realistic that way and talking about what bets are being put down, but they frame it in a way that you can follow along for sure. And they match up the game action to the bet action to to walk through it. So I think the movie does a good job of making that easy too. So for the crash course in parlays real quick, (laughs) throw that in here. Um, You know, it's just uh, rather than placing a bunch of individual bets, you put them all into one bet. Um, so obviously he does a six leg and a three leg, uh, every piece of the bet has to hit. Um, and it's just because it multiplies the, the, the winnings by that much. Right. So if you bet on three things, let's say that are favorites and you put $10 down on each thing, you might win 12 bucks on one. You might get 15 back on another and you might get, you know, 16 back on another. If you say, okay, but these three, three things are all going to happen and I'm going to put $30 down you might end up getting 100, 200 back um, just with how the odds are combined and escalated in a parlay. Um, and it's one of those things like, I don't know. So I, now that sports betting is it legal sounds in Colorado. Sort of like, I'm sorry, to, I play D&D. It sounds um, sort of like you can bet on this die is going to come up on a 20. And you can also just place a bunch of individual, de- individual bets on each roll. Or you can bet all five of these roles are going to be this exact number. Mm-hmm. That sort of. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sort of yeah. Idea. For yeah. sure. And that's the, 
you know, it's a dumber thing to do, but it's a sexier thing to do. Right. And I only bet a couple bucks at a time right now that Colorado has legalized sports betting. It's a thing that I do when I've gone out to Vegas in the past before Colorado did it. It's a thing that I did then. Um, and right. Like I could go in and say, Oh yeah, the nuggets are favored to win. I like the nuggets. They're going to, they're going to win. I can put $10 down. And like I said, maybe get 16 back, right? Not 16 on top of the 10, just 16 total back. Right. So put down 10, win six. That's fun, I guess. But you could also say like, okay, Nikola Jokic is going to have 20 points. Nuggets are going to win. MPJ is going to get this many rebounds and I can put five down and maybe win, you know, 50 or whatever. And it, it really, I don't know. So during March Madness this year, I put like a nine leg parlay down and hit everything but one. And the one that I missed on oh. the team that lost oh. was a favorite, right? So I hit like three underdogs and then like, so, I mean, Vegas is smart, right? They know what they're doing. They set these things. If, if it was easy to win parlays, like you could bet on 10 favorites, right? Because, oh, they're all favored. So, but that's not how sports work, right? And that's not how they set the line. So, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It's fun when you hit them um, yeah. and it sucks when you lose them. Like I said, that one, I think I put five down. I would have won 300 and it was one game away. And like, so to <laughs> me, well, I think like it was an added bonus to me and also like an added <laughs> Drama and frustration because the first thing he bets on, Joel, you mentioned this earlier, is is the Celtics to win the opening tip. And that blows my mind because that's such, like, of all of the bet, like, mm-hmm. that is the most, like, 50-50, right? They, they, the ref tosses the ball up. Two guys go for it. Who knows what the fuck is going to happen? Who knows which team is going to come down with it? And he puts $170,000 riding on that. I told Natalie when we were watching it, like, I know that there's more legs to the bet, but the tip is... The- like why yeah. would you and, and he references it, it, it too like he also yeah. in the previous bet he also makes that bet he makes a tip yeah. off bet and then he references it when it happens is like we could have lost it all right there it's <laughs> like the balls man like stop right? <laughs> don't open was, with that <laughs> i don't know if it's better or worse to because both are crushing but like to lose on the very first leg of a parlay or to lose on the last leg like both suck because you're not winning but like I've had nights where I'll put a couple bucks down and like everything has happened perfectly. And I'm like, great, this is going to happen because the last one's a sure thing. Nope. It all falls apart, but it sucks just as much to be like, okay, I'm putting a few bucks down. Oh, cool. I already yeah. lost it. Like five minutes after I put it, it's already gone because yeah. like, sitting down with all your snacks at the table. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You have one handful of chips and then you just put them back in the bowl and walk away. <laughs> exactly. I'm curious so to know, from, Zeke on, on a loss, what, what has been the biggest casualty, like physical object that's been thrown against the wall? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, no, nothing like that yet. Luckily, Not uh, yet. Keep it okay. all inside. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. And I, I try to, that's another thing that makes this movie so staggering to me is because like, I like to gamble, but I'm also kind of risk averse. Like I'm somewhere in between. Right. You're so a like, reasonable person. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Think about your future beyond the next 50 minutes. Right. I try. Yeah. And like, so I've opened accounts on different sports book and I started them like, with 20 bucks each and I've worked them all up. Like I'm happy with where they're at. And like, I only bet maybe five or 10, I got in trouble in March madness. Cause I was like, Oh, this is a sure thing. Here's a $25 bet. Mm-hmm. And I lost 25 bucks pretty quick. Um, but I don't know. I like, so to watch this movie 
And like to follow on Twitter, I follow some betting sites there and like to see the bets that people in real life put down. Like, I'm pretty sure when Julia shows up with a bag of money and they say, how much do you want to put down? And she dumps it out. I'm very sure that that's a thing that happens pretty regularly in Vegas, right? Or like, Mm -hmm. here's my watch. It's worth this. Or like, oh, here's like people lose cars, homes, like everything to gambling. Um, So I think that's one thing that heightened it for me because like I'm sweating when I put $5 down hoping to win 50 yeah. And it doesn't go well. So to see someone like put 170,000 down, 175,000 down and like something as simple as a, as a, as an opening tip, like being kind of the writing factor for everything like that just scares me too much. So for me, overall, the sports and the betting was just an added bonus because of those things. But I think the movie carries itself pretty well without it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do we want to move on to favorite scenes here? All right. Uh, Zeke, since this was your pick, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, and I think mine is easy because I was thinking about it. And honestly, I, I think this is a movie that I don't know that I have a favorite scene necessarily just because of, uh, as we've talked about, just how stressful the experience is. And it's not one where you're really enjoying it. So, I, you know, favorite scene wouldn't be like it would be for another movie where I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Or like, oh, I had fun watching that. Um, yeah, so not in that sense. I don't think I have a favorite scene. I was actually hoping to see if everybody would go around and see if that, you know, springs anything up for me. We'll, we'll bookend it with yours. Um, I'll jump in real quick. Um, as stressful as this decision is, this is like the money scene for me. And it's when he's got KG in his back office, he's got the sack of money and he makes his speech about fuck them. Like they're not like us. They can't dream. They don't. They don't want to get out of here. They don't want. They're not excited. They're not passionate. That they, they, you're not supposed to win this game. They think you're only going to get this many. Let's bet on it right now. And you're like, oh, this is the worst fucking decision. Like of all the bad decisions, this is the worst one. But he kind of convinces you with his performance, his energy, his passion, his excitement, and you turn the same way KG does. Cause he goes in and fucking wins that game in, in the, the universe of the movie. But like, you're like, Oh shit. He's, he's, he's betting it all. There's, there's no consideration. Like, even if he wins this, like, I, I mean, he had to pay off his, his father-in-law and Arlo and for his rate, like he would have still had some left over, but still like, it's such a fucking stressful and wrong decision. But the passion that he describes it in the, the the addict that that comes out of him in that sequence it, it makes the whole movie for me is is that that conversion of both KG and the audience like I feel so compelled in that is like I am ready to ride this out and I know what's coming at the end that's my favorite scene is watching and I think that like that's really like Sandler as an actor just really it it, it, it pays tribute to all the stress and anxiety before, and it tosses out the window, but you see how his mind works. You see that addict brain of the excitement and what if, and what, what motivates like, fuck this normal life, fuck these normal people. We have something different about us. And that's why we're going to come out on top. That is just a, a really amazing scene. I think for me, there, there are a few of them. Um, Cause it is kind of a bit of a, a progression of this part of the film, but it starts with when he he's going back to his apartment after he told, you know, his mistress, you know, he wants her out of there. And 
and you're kind of expecting all this drama because like, you know, the way they kind of ended and how she had kind of called and texted him and this, this, and that. And then he goes there and places like calm and peaceful. And he's kind of going through, like, you know, he sees the note from her, you know, I hope you find what you're looking for. And, and, and it's just kind of like, wait, what the fuck? Like she, she was supposed to be causing a fucking scene and, you know, and it's like shit. And like the way it makes him kind of like rethink that whole thing and, and, or not not rethink it, but at least have that moment of pause, you know, and, and also the fact that, you know, as like we were talking about before, how cacophon is so much of the film is up until the, you know, I mean, it has little points, but, but this is one of those points. And it, I feel like it's probably, you know, the most, like probably the, the, the part of the film that has the lowest decibel levels, you know, because mm. like even, you know, even starts with music and he turns it off and it's like, man, that might even be the only time we have like silence in the film, you know, and, and he's just kind of like looking, looking, you know, looks in the closet. Oh, all well, her clothes are gone, you know, and how, you know, and, and granted to be fair, it's, it's less impactful because he was just trying to get back together with his ex-wife, you know, and then she rejected him. So you're kind of like, okay, you know, I feel like if he, you know, after this moment of like, okay, I'm done with my mistress, you know, and it's, so there is kind of just an aspect of, okay, he doesn't want to be alone. Um, but it, it kind of like showed like, I guess how, how mature she was, you know, you're kind of just like, okay, here's this younger girl. Like, of course he's interested in her. You're not really sure why she's interested in him. Maybe because of the money, you know, he's got this big apartment that she stays in and brings her friends over, um, you know, kind of not really sure what she does for a living where she's kind of like hanging out in the bathroom doing Coke with the weekend, but supposedly, you know, she wasn't going to fuck him. So you're kind of like, Okay, like, yeah, and I think that's part of it is like, you're not supposed to know, like, where she stands with him and how, how faithful she is to him. But then in that moment, you're just like, oh, man, like she, she could have gone off and like trashed the place, you know, thrown a huge part, you know, but she didn't, she packed up her stuff and left like the, you know, and I was just like, damn, like, so it, it puts a whole different spin on her. And then like, you know, you know, fast forward to when, you know, he goes into work after he had gotten beat up and, you know, and she's there, you know, um, oh yeah, this was also after the scene where she doesn't show up to work, you know, and you're kind of like, okay, is, is she going to quit? You know, and, and, you know, I could see where that would be awkward, but it's like, no, like she, she still shows up to work the next time, even though like it's super awkward, you know, and then she's concerned about him. Like he just kind of dumped her in an instant and she's still like concerned for his well being, And you, you really see like, wow. She like, she, yeah, she really loves him. Like for, this isn't just about him. You know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, sure. We, we all love when our spouses have success, you know, be it monetary or other, but it's like, yeah, like, it's almost like it's not about the money he has for her. It's more about like his, his, you know, his life and him. And, you know, she's happy when he's happy because he's got a big score, not because, Oh, I'm going to spend all his money now, you know? Um, so I, I, I really love like, and, and of course it happens like right at the end, just to kind of give you that last bit of, of hope and make the ending that much more crushing, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, Oh, the two of them were about to find this stability and kind of go off into the sunset and be happy together. And so, so I really love like how quickly, you know, it went from, you're not really sure what their relationship is to like, to rooting for them to be together, you know, and, and them getting together and then you know and her kind of 
knowing enough of his world, you know, both from working in the shop and knowing him like, Oh, you know, go, go to Joe's bathroom, you know, okay, here, take this thing, you know, and she doesn't know all the ins and outs of the betting, but she knows what to do. And she doesn't, she's going to go there and she's going to make the bet for him, you know? And it was like, you know, like, like she could have taken the money and run by that point. Like, fuck you, man, you just dumped me, you know, but like, like, no, she, she, she's in it. You know, it's like, yes. Okay. We're, we're going to do this. You know, she doesn't try to talk him out of it. Like, you know, and, um, so that, yeah, like the, that little sort of series of scenes I thought was just like super sweet and super like, you know, that more so the glimmer of hope than, than the money of him getting out of debt finally was just like, oh, even if he loses, you know, as long as they don't kill him because of it, like the two of them can be together and she's not going to leave him because he's lost all his money and whatever. And then it's like, oh, no, never mind. They can't be together, anyway, you know, and, and, and it also added... Like, it, it, that's one of the things that made the ending that much sadder, too, is that she's getting in the car. She's getting handed all this money. Like, she got out of there. She's got the money. And, it, you know, again, like, you assume she's bringing it back to him, you know, that she's not just going to take off with it. And and how heartbroken she's going to be when she gets back there and, like, finds him dead. And it's like, what what the fuck, you know? Like, um, but, yeah, so I feel like those those few scenes were so masterful. Number one, to kind of, like, really show the, I guess the, the maturity of their relationship on her part. Like, you know, he was a fucking mess the whole time, but she kind of had her shit together, you know? And, and that it, you know, like it, it made the ending that much worse. Like if he had broken up with her and he was alone, the ending wouldn't have been as tragic, but the fact that right before they kind of clinched it and, you know, he was at his lowest and she was there for him and he realized she really cared for him and, you know, and, you know, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to make this happen. And then oh, it comes crashing down. <laughs> I love that scene where he goes to the apartment too, because he's looking for the drama. Mm. He's going there because he got rejected by his wife. And he, I mean, the kid comes up, he's like, this is going to hit the fan. And I think it's like, it because he, like he's always doing something. And I think that quiet car ride home is killing him because his, there's no stimulus. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm going to go fucking raise some hell and this is going to be trashy and messy and it's just all going to come out because that's better than the silence. And and that so much informs that is like, he's walking from a room, he's disappointed. He's like, oh, the music's on. She She's in there and she mm-hmm. it's going to be bad. And he goes in, there's nothing, just just calm waters. He's like, this is not, not what I came here for. Because <laughs> that's the thing, he stops. He's like, that's not the plan. He, they're going home. And it's such a deliberate choice. And you can see, and his wife is played by Adina Menzel from Wicked, the incredible singer. It's Frozen. She's El- Elsa in, in Frozen. I think she was also in Rent, too, wasn't she? She could. Yes. I, I, mm-hmm. Yeah. She's Mo, right? Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I didn't realize that before this, this time watch. I was like, oh, shit, that's, that's the Wicked Witch of the West. She's amazing. Um, but, like, she's just that inner exchange is like, I'm going to stop at the apartment. She's like, you really going to do this here? It's like, yeah, I'm going to go do it. And then it, they're, they're both waiting for it to go wrong. And it just, it doesn't. And that, that's, that's really interesting too. I liked what you said to him about the ending bit and how Julia comes back because her whole reaction to the breakup and, you know, the reconciliation and all that speaks not only to her maturity, but also to how long they might've been together. Mm. You know, that she knows things are weird right now and things are going badly for him and things are just spiraling out of control. 
and that, you know, okay, sure, he broke up, but that he's having a hard time, right? This isn't the normal baseline. And it seems like that's part of why she, you know, she sees him beat up and she goes back into the office and is like, oh my God, what happened to you? <laughs> like, holy shit. You know, because you kind of see them at the, at the first, at the start, and you just kind of assume that he throws his money around to attract some pretty thing, right? But there's way, way more depth there than you first suspected. Um, I think, I think like, Zeke, I don't really have a favorite scene because the whole thing just rolls from start to finish so naturally. But I will touch on a couple more. The family meeting, the party or whatever <laughs> it is, is brilliant as a moment of quiet, as a weird other side of, of um, Howard we don't see, and his the loan reveal. shark is there. Arno. <laughs> but that is a turning moment, turning point for Arno. Because Arno isn't all over him. He's saying, shut up. I don't like... He just kind of... He has this look of contemplation through that whole family event, the Lone Shark, the brother-in-law. Like he's thinking and processing and observing. And after that, the thugs kind of step into the background. They're still there, of course. They're still half on them. They're still calling him. But until the auction, that, that's kind of it. You know, they did their slow escalating. We're following him. We're taking pictures. We're spying. We put a stop on his thing. We beat him up on the parking lot and put him in a trunk, etc. And then there's the family event. And then it stops until the auction, right? And it's almost like that event is a breath of fresh air for Arno to just be like, oh, yeah, this is why I haven't killed him yet. But also, this is why I loaned him the money in the first place. And he sort of just step, takes a step back. And, you know, of course, once the auction goes south, you know, they come at him hard and fast. But even then, Arno himself doesn't, you know, say, yeah, you know, beat this knot out of him. He just walks away. He says, stop talking to me. Don't say my name. He's done. You know, he's kind of, kind of washed in his hands of the aggression. So I really liked the family scene. And then similarly, the auction as the culmination of that for Arno, like I just mentioned, but also just man. Kevin Garnett in the auction is the cherry on top. Oh, I love that his handler's there too. Like, it's just mm-hmm. like, and that's the thing, like in the jewelry shop, there wasn't that he was ready. And he, the second time he comes back, he's like, here's 175 cash. And that's what he was willing to do anyway. And the second that somebody else got involved, he's they're like, we can't, we can't let you do that. Like, <laughs> It's just a great grace note on, on, on that whole progression is like, and that's the thing, like, again, it's Howard is betting that KG will drive it up as far as, as possible. And he's the one variable he couldn't, didn't count on was the representation. So, yeah, that's, that's just brilliant. Like the cherry on top. I also want to mention, um, Sarah came and watched this with me partway through. And you said to me, well, I mean, he's either got to end up dead or he's got to succeed and win big, right? Like, that's the only two, <laughs> two ways this path can go. That was her prediction. And then, of course, it was both. <laughs> oh, my God. You know? What? So, yeah. So, she wasn't wrong. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. I also have to say one of my favorite scenes is Adam Sandler just swinging at the weekend. <laughs> just like, I'm going to fight the weekend. <laughs> like... <laughs> Also, Grammy award-winning when... <laughs> and Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show performing. 
he's still a rookie then. He can still get it. He can still <laughs> catch these hands. <laughs> like when Julia is showing him the, like, oh, this is the weekend. He's going to be in town. He's, this guy looks stupid. <laughs> such a good line. Is, there's even, someone says, he's going to be big even though he's Canadian. <laughs> what, a, what a line. It's 2012, man. They didn't know. <laughs> Really, yeah, and then you get the, the the most random just John Amos cameo, like, oh yeah, hey, yeah. the guy from Good Times and Coming to America lives next to my apartment. <laughs> Can we use your toilet? No, <laughs> like, Bye. between yeah. that and the weekend and like Dina Menzel, like this has got some talent, but like randomly to it, <laughs> yeah, that gave it a feeling of, and and give everything a feeling of Adam Sandler just doing what he wants to in general, with his career, which is great. I think that's a really great place for an actor to be because I think we see them explore a little more. It really gave the film a sense of being, uh, it, gave, it gave Sandler a sense of being where he wanted to be, but it also gave everyone else a sense of wanting to be there, right? That they all heard about this project with certain people in it and who they wanted to work with and thought sounded interesting and they went and did it. And it just, it sort of increased my ability to buy into the film, but it made me even more excited to see where Adam Sandler goes next because when an actor is at that point where they're just kind of reading scripts and going, Oh yeah, I like this. Oh, I like that. Oh, Hey, some guy I liked working with had a project and you want it. Oh, great. I'm in right. Like that. That's when we see them explore. And sometimes it's just in cameos, right? Just in little things where they show up here and there, but sometimes it's in a big way. And it feels, it feels like Nicholas Cage has been doing that for his entire career, right? <laughs> because that's why he ends up with so many different things. But it makes me really excited to see where Adam Sandler is going to go next. And to, to stick with the Nick Cage analogy a bit, Joel, you sent me an interview that Nick Cage did. We talked about a lot of his other roles. Mm-hmm. and talked about the inspirations he drew on to design the characters, the body language, the speaking, to put all the pieces together. And... Oh my God, he's super knowledgeable about film and film history and all kinds of movies from all over the world and all different parts of histories and different performances. He's in it, man. Not, you know, to be fair, if all if you think of Nicolas Cage and um, if you think of him in National Treasure and not the bees, you're not really going to think about that. But <laughs> hot damn, you know, even in, in the roles that are kind of goofy or the movies that are just fun projects, even in the roles that are not exactly the most serious roles, He's taking them seriously because it's fun and it's what he wants to do, right? And that, I got that same feeling from Adam Sandler here. Like he committed into this role because he saw something and thought it would be a nice time. And so I'm really interested to see where that goes now. What else is going to attract his attention that might, you know, things that he might try to seek out or just sort of stumble upon, not that he necessarily needs to prop his career up anymore, right? Or make money, but just that this was received so well. I hope that'll be encouraging. And I hope he'll branch out more. Yeah, I I was really interested this watch on the Safdie brothers as directors and how this film's put together. Because they're big film nerds. Like they've been in, in the criterion closet and they, they did like going to the movies with and they, they're big old nerds. It's really funny. Like they go to the, the closet and both their bags are huge and overflowing with films. And they're really young guys. I don't think they're, I think they're 30 now. So they've been writing for a long time and they, their pr- first works were more documentaries and they had a really big hit, which was good time, 
with Robert Pattinson, which was, uh, I think, in another A24 or Studio A24 production. And that's what got Sandler interested was seeing that at Cannes. And it was really interesting to watch kind of the, the uh, film language of this film is very kind of super realist in almost a documentarian style. There's very real people you're actually going through. And it, it's not kind of the classic masturbatory New York walk-in talks where it's like, here's Grand Central Station, or we're going by this specific block that's very iconic. It, it seemed very much like in I'm the district. I'm walking here. Right. It's very much in the Diamond District and very specific. And those people, and I mean, even the loop that he, he lets KG use, that was one of the, the sources that belonged to a guy that he had studied. He used that line and after they had wrapped filming, that guy kept calling. It's like, you better give me my best loop back because that's the one I really like. So like just the, the accuracy, but something I really liked about, they really did a good job of establishing cause and effect. We see how that the security doors work a lot before that end sequence. And that is such a bit, those moments are almost like the Chekhov's guns. Chekhov's They're, gun, yeah. Right? They're establishing this is important. The, 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 the mechanics of how this works is important. And it's almost an afterthought when the file falls out at the, at the end where they get trapped. It falls out because they slam it too hard because they're mad and they want to leave. And that's what leads to them being stuck in there. And that's a huge plot point in that climactic uh, scene. And then also with KG leaning on the glass because – Sandler says, don't lean on the glass like three or four times previous to that. And he's saying it as he's going into the opal and you get that kind of space exploration. And that's, that's the crash that brings everybody back down to earth. So there's a lot of like setting these things in motion and a very clear progression of cause and effect. And I mean that in, in effect, that's what Howard's journey is, is a number of bad causes and worse effects leading to this last climactic moment. And, and the reason it doesn't go well is because he, he had too many bad causes. He pissed that loan shark off way too much, the muscle off too much. And that's what leads to his, his death. So it, it, I, I was really interested in those kind of like how shots are composed, what it leads, where the, where the stillness came in, where the, where the ratcheting up of the decibel level of the score came in. And and I, I was really interested in, because again it's a barrage and it has the right peaks and the right valleys to to just continue to drive that home and um, I thought that was really cool and something else, like this is just a small thing that I thought was interesting I didn't notice in the first viewing how nice his fucking house is like when we get to that point and it's after all of the the drama he goes up to the apartment and they they're gonna go to bed he's got a nice fucking house. He's got this nice, quiet, he could have this nice, quiet little life. He hasn't done bad for himself, but it's too quiet. So much of what he's wanting, I mean, he has, he has an apartment in, in the city. It's not a super nice apartment. It's smaller, but for some reason, he has to, that energy is different. He wants that stress. He, he wants something to be going on in his head because he doesn't want to go home to his nice fucking house. That I, I mean, the the amount of time he would spend in a cab and like driving down to Philly and driving in from the city and out from the city, like I I know traffic here is nowhere near as bad as it is in in the Diamond District of New York City. So like it's just like he has to be part of this energy, 
and it, it's kind of a part of his his addiction too, which I thought was really interesting. And the way he played his addiction when when he wins in the back of the cab, he plays it or, like an orgasm. The way that he talks about it, and I mean, like it, it, he he talks about. I mean, he, he says I'm going to come like six different times in the film, but like it, it's very much tied into that is the pleasure center that's working. And I, I think that that was a really clever choice. It seems like a very vulgar choice, but it makes a whole lot of sense in terms of winning big and, and that being the endorphins that you're chasing for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. I really like all that. I don't know if I'm stretching too much here, but when you were talking about his apartment, like it's so nice and he always wants more. I feel like the, the rings are a symbol for that too, because he has his Knicks ring which He's is such a, a sick ring. Yeah. Like a championship ring from his favorite team. And it's, you know, when he puts the two on together, the next ring and the Celtics ring, cause they're 20, 30 years apart, the next rings older and it's much smaller and it's just not quite, but it's still treasured to him. Right. Um, and that's something that they hammer on a couple of times. Cause he swaps it out with the pawn guy and they're like, are you sure this is your, this is your next ring. But like you said, like just that drive to want, so much more and like to hit big, right? Like he even is willing to pawn that beloved Knicks ring for the Celtics ring and for the money and all the winnings that could come with that. I think that's just another example of what you mentioned with the, with the apartment and everything else in his life. It's always about the next big thing, not what he has now. I really like the, the neon sequence at the, the, the weekend show. Like there's a lot of Blade Runner DNA in this. Scott was saying, especially the, the soundtrack wise in the opening, there's a lot of that kind of electronic. They actually, I, I was listening to an interview and they had Moog, who is the, the synthesizer developer. They gave them a couple different soundboards specifically for the development of this soundtrack. Like they developed new soundscapes as a result of like them collaborating with the specific um, composer, which I thought was super rad. But that that sequence in the neon and the way everybody's dressed and the way that Julia is highlighted and the way that everybody else is 10, 15, 20 years younger than Adam Sandler and the fact that Sandler is wearing Gucci and shit, but he always looks dirtier and worse in all of this nice stuff. Like I, just the contrast in that. And like it's a visually stunning sequence, just like the 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 contrast with uh, when he finds Lakeith Stanfield in that mm, yeah he's wearing that orange sweatshirt yeah. that's just on fire from the mm. black light and all the people he's with in the group are wearing just like black yeah yeah brilliant that's a, a like we haven't even talked about lakeith yet and like yeah. <laughs> he's one of my favorite guys doing it right now he's just such a great actor but like there's just so much going on in here in so many pieces so much movement so many actors and faces like that I forgot to talk about him until now but like absolutely a driving force in here um you know steals the scene when he's on too yeah just so good too everyone is so good in this one like we mentioned like scott like you mentioned earlier just such a small cast but like everybody that's in it knocks it out of the park and the character was such a rich backstory that we don't see a whole lot of like the whole idea that he is employed by howard in some sense to bring guy like he's a handler he brings these guys in but he also has this side hustle that he wants to sell these fake rollies and the fact that Howard doesn't really respect that and he's giving away to people to fuck with them. Like that that whole dynamic, the power dynamic there is really, really interesting. It kind of shows that Howard really believes in what he does. 
even if yeah. he's always trying to make a buck, he really believes. You know, he's not just going to chuck these fake watches at people. For it's not about the money; it's about I don't know about the deal, right? About what? The, fa- the fact that they can't get the stone back, and they have to drive to Philly, and Adams playing—I mean, Howard's playing the fool like at the practice and just belligerent and loud and just can't be like I. I, I the stress of that, because I had forgotten. I was like, yeah, he doesn't get the stone back. And then when he does all all this other shit, like there's so much to remember. And I'm glad that you l- lined it up as much as you did, Zeke, that it's like there's so much that goes wrong. If you don't plot it out, I was surprised by all the things. Like I forgot that they had pulled the bet for, in, in the first place. What a devastating thing that was. And then to be locked naked in the – like. Uh, just just the the stress of that would have been enough for a movie right and then it gets so much worse because like, it's not just that he has even if he had taken the payment right from kg straight up took the 175 well i think he ends up bringing him 165 i think well because he yeah. gave he gave the, the cut to the, the father-in-law the, yeah. yeah um well no he gave the the cut to um we just were talking about him, orange hoodie. I can't remember his the actor's uh, name. Lakeith. Lakeith. Um, the Thank character you. was Demani. Demani. Yeah, Demani. Demani. Yeah, Demani. Like he gave him a cut of it. Uh, uh-huh. So, but even at that point, he could have paid up Arlo, but he could not have paid off his father-in-law, and he could not have paid off for his ring. So at that point, like he had to do some other hustling even if he had taken that. And that's something I keep forgetting. But at that moment, it's like, you shouldn't bet all of it. Like pay off the guy who's going to kill you. Like you could, you could like, you'd have, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what the VIG was, but you would have walked away with me 30 grand. That would have been enough to kind of play with and do something more with. But like, yeah. I mean, make that parlay bet with 30 grand. It's more than I've ever had in my life to put down on something (laughs) like that. But he does this shit all the time. So like he would have still won big and not gotten fucking killed. But yeah. <laughs> I don't even think in my breakdown, I, I don't, I think I kind of glossed over the fact that when he goes back to get the opal, I didn't talk about that, that like then KG doesn't want to give it back and they have to go to track and down drive two hours to Philly to try to get it while he's practicing. Like that whole, just everything goes wrong. Every, every chance it gets. Before we possibly move to Joel's favorite segment, I want to point out that at the very bottom of the Uncut Gems Wikipedia page, I found something interesting. This is what I mentioned earlier that was good for later in the podcast. There's always a see also section, right? List of films that most frequently use the word fuck. <laughs> Let's click on that. That's, Uncut Gems, that number four. Fucking... <laughs> number four with uh, 560 uses of the word fuck. Oh, number three, really? The Wolf of Wall Street. That's three. 569. That's Numbers one and two. I Number two is a documentary literally titled Fuck. Nah. So, meh. Number one is something called Swearnet the Movie. Canadian comedy. Huh. But from the title and the poster here, I'm judging it revolves around swearing. So, <laughs> the top film that doesn't wolf of wall street yeah and then yeah, number it's... two uncut gems it blows my mind that uncut gems is number four right. like right. i think there was so much going on that i didn't realize that they cuss a lot or i'm just that desensitized to it because i cuss I a lot know. but like 
There's also like I a would... lot of talking over, and I think that like I mean it's very uh, New York, and it's like yeah. there's there's a few fucks like um, as Tim's grandmother used to say, "Fuck is punctuation." No, that was Flo that said that. Oh, that's Flo. Okay. Yeah. I, I I don't know why I contrived that. Our Tarantino films are back-to-back back at numbers 30 and 31. Reservoir Dogs in number 30 with 269 uses. Pulp Fiction in 31 with 265 right behind. And then 32, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. One other standout, though, number 47, Eddie Murphy Raw. <laughs> they're they're kind of here. Well, yeah. I, you, you did get a theatrical release, so that makes yeah. sense, right? So yeah, that's about it. That's yeah, I would have said Wolf of Wild Street is the 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 top of the top. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Jonah Hill is the actor who has said "fuck" the most in all of film. I can believe that. I can absolutely believe. That. I thought it would have been a Pesci or a De Niro, but like, uh, I get with <laughs> with Wolf of Wall Street alone, he put up some real numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you know his his. I was going to say kids, like his like college comedies, right? They're all oh, over yeah. that. So it's like his entire Street, body of work, like, you yeah. know? <laughs> Whereas like oh, yeah, with super Pacino bad. or De Niro or whoever, right? Like they, they do it with Scorsese and then not necessarily otherwise. Right. Well, with that... That was uh, a wiki anything, minute. <laughs> is there anything else we've missed or should we move on to Joel's favorite segment? You good, Zeke? Because mm-hmm. I feel like we talked a lot about this, but I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. Like it, it's just, yeah... Yeah. Uh, no, I think we got the big ones, but I think you're right. I think there's just, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Um, no, I think this was great. It is, it is time for another <laughs> situational movie recommendation. Zeke brought one. Yeah. So I was just thinking, um, we've talked about it a little bit, but what other instances are your uh, favorites of uh, an actor playing against type or playing outside of what they usually do? Ooh. You've really nailed us with this one, Zeke. It's just silence all around. <laughs> trying to think of one that I, I hadn't already said, because I think Bill, Ben Stiller in Secret Life of Walter Mitty is a very different kind of character, very more, much more reserved and less outrageous um oh i have one I, I i brought this up before i can't remember the context but uh jim carrey in the number 23 Ooh, that's a good one i, 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 I was thinking that, that one too yeah um i was i was gonna say jim carrey in number 23 or jim carrey in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind yeah that's not a good one yeah. that movie's incredible i feel like he's a little more serious there um but yeah yeah I mean, Robin Williams in uh, Goodwill Hunting, I guess, would have been the first. Maybe I like he's been in a million things, but like whenever he played, or, or uh, Insomnia, yeah, that that's what Robin I thought Williams you were going to go. Yeah. Insomnia is, and I still haven't seen um, photo one hour photo one hour photo. I still haven't seen that one, but that's supposed to be like chilling and really scary. Um. But yeah, Robin, Robin, just an incredible dramatic actor. And when he plays a bad guy, he's a bad, bad man. <laughs> I think another one for me, um, Tim, you got at this earlier, but Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. Because before that, I knew him as as Hal and Malcolm in the Middle. Yeah. Um, and then so to see him in Breaking Bad, I know he's that's kind of, you know, I'd say he's probably a little bit more serious. That's another interesting thing about this list is I feel like, 
my brain goes to people who are typically comedic or goofy that then go to do serious roles. I'm trying to think of people who are typically serious. One that I have there actually, um, and it ties into Adam Sandler, but would be Jack Nicholson and anger management. Another (laughs) one of my favorite um, Sandler movies, but like, right. Jack's always a tough guy and like a mobster or just, you know, all the roles that he's typically played. So in anger management to see him be this, he still kind of has that persona, but then he's also like a goofball and like, or in something's got to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's true. Give. Yeah, yeah. Something's got to give is another one where he kind of lets loose a little bit. That's one I'm thinking of going the other way. Well, I have to kind of embarrass myself here. It is Steve Carell, but not in The Way Way Back, which I think of as the first time I saw him in a serious role, but in Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. which I keep mm-hmm. forgetting he's in at all. Yeah. And I guess it's technically still a comedy, but it, you know, his role has so much weight in that. I'm sure it will be nobody with Bob Odenkirk when I finally see it. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Um, well, maybe, oh, shit. Matrix with Keanu? Because leading up to that, he was surfer, like he was Bill and Ted and then Point Break and then Neo, right? Like, um, See, that's funny because I, I think of the action star as yet another thing for the handsome young heartthrob. Yeah, but it's serious. Like, like he was very much typecast as like, dude, like that. That I get. Maybe Speed would have been the the kind of changeover. I don't know. Any else? I just romantic stuff. Like, was it a Walk to Remember? No, not a Walk to Remember. Uh, A Sweet November or some shit like that. Like him and Charlize Theron were like in like some romance together, Mm -hmm. and like him and Sandra Bullock were in another romance together. So I feel like he was doing that for a while too. I'll throw Shia LaBeouf in as just in anything, in anything because right, yeah. like starts out as even Stevens and Holes, but like he's done so oh much lately, gosh. like Honey Boy, Peanut Butter Falcon, like and there's just so many things he's done lately where he's just like I'm doing this completely different thing. So him in anything, yeah. That's, I guess oppositely, it would have to be someone who I only initially knew as like any of the elderly British actresses, right? Judy Dench, Maggie Smith, right? As the people you first saw in these, like, very upright, very strict roles, and then they go off and do something funny. Even Because, like, Judy Dench did, um, as time goes by, the TV series for ages. Like, that was one of her biggest roles, but as an American born in the 90s, I found that once late at night on some TV channel. And it was so weird to see this marginally younger version of her in a basically a sitcom, right? <laughs> but it's brilliant. It's really excellent. It's a, this is a good one because it's difficult. Like uh, <laughs> Steve Buscemi, he he kind of ping pongs back and forth a bit. Willem Dafoe in Boondock Saints. <laughs> that that's like. <laughs> Definitely. I, yeah, because <laughs> he. I mean, he's been seen chewy before, but before that, he, he's been not really winking at you. But in that role, like, he's just no holds barred in that role. Even even Arnold, to think about the difference between oh, something yeah. like Total Recall and The Terminator. Oh yeah, you know, those of course and both... Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a tumor. Those both Keaton. existed, you know. Keaton is Batman. Yeah. And then Keaton is Birdman <laughs> after not And then as the founder <laughs> in the founder. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh man. That's a good one, Zeke. Thanks. Yeah. That's a real good one. 
Zeke, you just keep bringing us gold. This is why you're a permanent <laughs> member. You keep bringing us more. You bring us more uncut gems for us to, to carve <laughs> into glorious, glorious jewelry. For us to stare into the void of the universe. <laughs> jewelry for your ears. The trial period is officially over. <laughs> what trial period? <laughs> You've been in yeah. so many episodes at this point. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that's so yes. Thank you, thank you for bringing us this film, which was phenomenal, yeah. and for your excellent situational movie recommendation. Yeah, thanks uh, for enjoying it and putting up with my uh, rant about my sports betting habits. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> that means that we conclude our cycle. So next month is Joel's selection. Joel, what will you be bringing us? I think it's time for it. Might get loud, and. This I've been talking about this basically since we I mean I have so many that I've been talking about since the start of the podcast and I will I'll, I'll give you the context this this is all it is it's the Edge Jimmy Page and Jack White meeting in a room with their guitars and talking about guitar playing and their bands that's all it is it's not a rockumentary it's not a documentary it's guitar porn and it's amazing like it I I'm there, there's no other analog for what it is. I don't know that I've seen anything else. That's it, it's, it's, it's a YouTube video genre, right? Like, it's like, Hey, come look at my guitars and my gear and talk about how they interflue. It's like a, a rig rundown, which is a, a YouTube channel that I really like, but it's them talking about their careers and the way it's cut is, is really ethereal and kind of moves from movement to movement. And there's archival footage and it, it, it's, it's these three guitarists talking about, guitar and and i'm so excited to get to watch it again i finally found i've been going to second and charles for so many years looking for this disc specifically and every time i went i couldn't find it couldn't find it i found one this last time i went it had never been opened the disc is as pure as glass and i'm going to watch it with the deleted scenes and get to see the or uh, listen to the director's audio commentary i'm so excited to like get into this I, I don't know if it's going to be a very long discussion, but I am so excited to get to share it with you guys. That sounds exciting. It would be nice to sort of to dip back into documentary, which isn't something we've done much of, but also into this particular format, which sounds kind of unusual. So yeah, that'll be really great next month. This was a really great podcast this month. Hmm. Unlike Howard... We have good times behind us and good times in front of us. (laughs) Thank you all for joining me, my friends. And thank you, listeners. Until next time, good night. Bye. Bye. This is how I win. Did you know Movie Mumble has its very own Twitter account? Please follow us on Twitter at MovieMumbleNTG and tweet at us with questions, reviews, or recommendations of things you'd like us to watch next.